Welcome to the AFP Report. This is your host, John Friend. Today is Friday, November 10th, 2023. The AFP Report is a podcast series where I will be interviewing reporters and contributors to American Free Press, America's last real newspaper, as well as other special guests. Please consider subscribing to the newspaper if you are not already. Subscription details can be found at AmericanFreePress.net. And today I'm joined once again by Dr. Kevin Barrett, a leading voice in the alternative media and a longtime contributor to American Free Press. All right, Dr. Kevin Barrett, welcome back to the program, sir. How are you today? I'm well, John. It's good to be back on your show. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me as always. We've had some major developments in the Middle East and in occupied Palestine since your last appearance on the program all of which we will be addressing at length here today. Uh, The the recent issue, I guess the the previously published issue of American Free Press, we had a pretty lengthy, detailed report, Spotlight on Palestine, where we talked about the origins of this conflict and some of the current current news and current developments taking place. This most recent issue of of the newspaper, which we just published today, that's issue 45 and 46, that just went to the printer this morning. We, of course, have more coverage of the conflict in Palestine and Israel's aggression against Gaza. Um, first off, though, let me start off by encouraging our listeners to consider subscribing to the newspaper if they are not already. American Free Press, of course, is known as America's last real newspaper, and it no doubt lives up to that description. We are a bi-weekly national and international print and digital newspaper covering the most controversial and taboo topics from an independent populist America first type perspective. And as you know, I'm sure most of our listeners know publishing a print newspaper is no easy task these days, especially when, I mean, even like mainstream corporate newspapers are struggling to maintain a print operation. So Please do consider subscribing to the newspaper today if you are not already and support our important work. Check out AmericanFreePress.net for all of those details and also be be sure to check out the American Free Press bookstore where we have a variety of books for sale. That's also um, a good way to sort of support American Free Press and pick up some good reading material. So, okay, with all of that having been said, Dr. Barrett, um, I first have to ask you, what exactly happened on October 7th? I mean, some have alleged that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Israel's military and intelligence and border security apparatus either allowed this Hamas surprise attack to take place or they may have even orchestrated it themselves as like a sort of false flag style operation to justify the leveling of Gaza and the ethnic cleansing of the remaining portions of occupied Palestine, which, I mean, as we both know, has long been a goal of the more hardline Zionist Likudnik apparatus, um, which, you know, Netanyahu represents. So what is your take on this Hamas surprise attack? Was it a legitimate military operation, or was it some sort of false flag type attack? Well, John, it definitely wasn't a full-scale false flag, if by that you mean a, uh, a MIHOP in which the uh, actual perpetrator would be the state that claims to have been attacked, in this case Israel, uh, or, or uh, an allied state. Uh, like 9-11 was a classic false flag. A MIHOP made it happen on purpose, uh, in, a, in a very, very strong way. That is that there really was no independent Al-Qaeda at the time. It didn't exist. You know, Al-Qaeda was a CIA database of Mujahideen fighters that had been recruited to fight the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, and they were fully infiltrated. And this media line that, you know, oh, we can't infiltrate Al-Qaeda was just the exact opposite of the truth. You know, the CIA operative, Sergeant Ali Mohammed actually orchestrated the African embassy bombings prior to 9-11. And the, uh, the famous uh, analyst, Mohammed Haikal, Egypt's number one 
historical and current events analyst, said that when he was in the Egyptian government, part of his job was you know, keeping an eye on the fact that his government and many other governments, including the U.S. and Israel, had totally infiltrated so-called al-Qaeda. So there was no independent al-Qaeda that had any capabilities to do anything remotely like 9-11. So that was a total false flag. The actual damage was done by Americans and Israelis. And the towers were almost certainly blown up by Israelis. Uh, so on October 7th, up the Al-Aqsa storm operation was obviously not uh, carried out by Israelis, although, you know, one could make the argument that Israel did the vast majority of the damage on October 7th, meaning the majority of civilian deaths. And the latest statistics seem to show that about half of those killed in Israel on October 7th, and at this point, it's up to about a thousand. They, they claimed originally like there were 1,300 people killed, but they've been very, very slow to give us the names. And now we're up to close to a thousand, about half of which are civilian, about half of which are military. And so of those 500 or so people so far that uh, are classified as Israeli civilians, and of course, that's a dubious classification for various reasons. They're all Israeli Jews, except for uh, hyper-religious Jews are in the military, they serve in the military, so they're, uh, you know, they're, they're potential combatants. They're also potential combatants in the sense that they're settlers. But in any case, the half the 500 currently serving Israeli military people were killed. Uh, maybe 500 civilian, quote unquote, Israelis were killed. Of those 500 civilians, it appears that the vast majority were actually killed by Israeli forces, not by Hamas. And all of this nonsense about this horrific, gigantic massacre by Hamas is just Zionist propaganda lies. Now, the, I haven't yet found a single video showing a clear case of a Hamas gunman killing even one totally defenseless Israeli civilian. And the ages of these civilians that Israel has listed, there, there are no children. So this whole nonsense about uh, you know, Hamas killing babies and butchering, you know, beheading babies and killing children and, and all this sort of thing is, is just propaganda garbage. Whoa, whoa, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on. You don't believe that Hamas fighters were putting babies in ovens and chopping <laughs> off their heads and brutally raping innocent Israeli civilians? You don't just take these claims at face value like virtually every U.S. politician and mass media outlet? No, and I also I also deny that Hamas killed uh, six million Israeli Jews uh, using Zyklon B gas. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know what? I gotta I gotta say, and and this is actually a topic I want to talk more about, but these atrocity tales are just so frankly insulting and outrageous that anybody could just blindly accept these really like ludicrous stories coming out. It's just I mean, again, it's insulting, and yet you know, no matter where you go, certainly. Among even like conservative, like alternative media, there's not one of these atrocity tales that they don't blindly accept and run with and amplify. It's absolutely incredible. And, and, and the truth is, is actually even more incredible, which is what I, what I was getting at, was that what, what happened uh, was that Hamas mounted a military operation that was, in effect, a concentration camp breakout. It was a lot like the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising in World War II. And, you know, John, our, it, the, the propaganda about World War II and the Nazi atrocities and all of that has no doubt been exaggerated. But there's no question that Germany did round up all kinds of people that were deemed to be enemies of the state or troublemakers or what have you. And uh, one group, such group was the Warsaw Ghetto that was forced into this kind of Gaza Strip style open air concentration camp. And they did have an uprising and they broke out and they attacked their tormentors. And so in a sense, that's what happened here. Uh, and it wasn't just Hamas. It was a coalition of all of the leading Palestinian resistance groups that managed to break through this concentration camp wall, which the Israelis had erroneously thought was impregnable because they they've spent huge piles of Americans taxpayers money to uh, put these underground concrete you know, mountain roots reaching hundreds of feet down and sensors automatic machine guns that just automatically blow anything away that comes anywhere near the wall, all this sort of thing. Super high tech with uh, a communications grid so that if an insect approaches the wall, they can see it. So they thought that all this technology meant that it couldn't be defeated. And what Hamas did and the rest of the Palestinian resistance groups that were part of this is they disabled the communications. They used drones to take out the cellular transmitters. 
And suddenly Israel was totally blind and they were able to uh, land uh, frogmen and naval people on the beaches. They were able to go over the wall in paragliders and they were able to knock down the wall with bulldozers, a little turnabout is fair play, since the Israelis are notorious for taking down Palestinian homes, often with people still in them, with bulldozers, bulldozing olive fields and things like that. Well, the Palestinians broke out of their concentration camp with bulldozers, and so the, uh, the resistance groups came you know, bursting out and managed to take the Israeli military command posts along the concentration camp wall by surprise and captured them. The goal of the operation was to capture as many Israeli military people as possible to use them as bargaining chips to get uh, Palestinian prisoners released. There are, are right now over 10,000 Palestinians languishing in Israeli prisons under horrific conditions, being regularly tortured. Israel is the only state on earth until uh, the United States post 9-11 that makes an open policy of torturing its prisoners. So the Palestinians really want to get those people out. And that was the biggest uh, strategic or operational purpose of this operation. It was also designed to send a message that is uh, Israel has been desecrating the Al-Aqsa Mosque in preparation for demolishing it. Now, this is the Islamic world's oldest and greatest architectural monument, and it cannot be uh, threatened or desecrated. It certainly cannot be demolished without the world's two billion Muslims uh, going all out to stop it. So on behalf of, of the uh, world's two billion Muslims, the Palestinian resistance was saying enough is enough, no more desecration of this mosque, and we're going to have this operation grab uh, military prisoners, and if it, on an opportunistic basis, perhaps some civilian prisoners too, if possible. That was the goal of the operation. It wasn't to kill people. Of course, when you're attacking a, a very well-armed military like Israel, you obviously have to kill people to defeat them. And uh, the so-called civilians, again, are all military trained, and they are many, in many cases armed. These are settlers. And under international law, settlers are, in fact, legitimate targets. However, the uh, resistance groups worked very hard to avoid harming defenseless people. And when they captured hostages, they treated them very kindly and generously, as all of these hostages who have survived and been released have testified. And those same hostages testified that the Israeli casualties, the civilians that were killed, were killed by the Israeli military, not by Hamas. Hamas captured them. They were held in these kibbutz buildings uh, and in buildings on the grounds where the music festival was. There was a huge music festival going on right there at the concentration camp wall. And Hamas broke through and captured people at the music festival and held them there. And uh, maybe six hours after this had started, the Israeli military finally reacted. And they came in with all guns blazing, with helicopter gunships, uh, just blasting everything that moved and, and half of the things that didn't. And they utterly destroyed uh, whole uh, traffic. You know, there, there were cars on roads, very busy roads full of cars. And the Israelis thought that some of those cars had, quote unquote, Palestinian terrorists in them. And so they just did it. It was like the turkey shoot coming uh, out of Kuwait in Gulf War One. They just destroyed They murdered everybody that was on the road. And they murdered everybody that was in any of these buildings being held by Hamas. So the Israeli military, using heavy artillery fire, uh, helicopter gunships, and tank shells. We have a surviving Israeli witness who describes how the buildings uh, that she was in being held by Hamas, she was like the only survivor because the, these buildings were all destroyed by Israeli tank shells. So Israel has this doctrine called the Hannibal Directive that they will not allow any of their people to ever be taken hostage, and they will kill whoever it takes, including their own hostages, to prevent any Israelis from ever being taken hostage. So they came in with all guns blazing, with the helicopter gunships, the tanks, the heavy artillery, and they just murdered everybody, including hundreds and hundreds of their own hostages. So of the 500 so far uh, Israeli quote-unquote civilians that died on October 7th, probably well over 400 were killed by the Israelis themselves. So, so that's basically what happened on the ground. And the big question is, how could the Palestinian resistance have been so successful in pulling this off? And that's where the debate about you know false flag and Lihop and Myhop comes in. And it, it obviously wasn't Myhop. In other words, these were real Palestinians who broke out and uh, mounted this very successful operation. And so the only question would be, was there some sort of stand down that allowed them to do it? 
and uh, I don't think there was. Wow, very interesting. Yeah, a lot. Um, good, good analysis, good summation of 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 this event from your perspective. And and I'm actually looking at an article published by the Gray Zone, and this is an article written by Max Blumenthal, who is himself Jewish. Um, and it, isn't it incredible how what's emerging from alternative, more trustworthy, independent media sources totally clashes with the official narrative about Hamas beheading babies and brutally murdering innocent civilians. It looks like, in fact, as, as you were explaining, that the Israeli, Israeli military was actually behind a lot of the killings of, of Israeli civilians. And this article is titled, October 7 Testimonies Reveal Israel's Military Shelling Israeli Citizens with Tanks and Missiles. And it says here, Israel's military received orders to shell Israeli homes and even their own bases as they were overwhelmed by Hamas militants on October 7th. How many Israeli citizens, said to have been burned alive, were actually killed by friendly fire? And it's a very provocative question, a very provocative article, and it gets into some of this eyewitness testimony, which we have to take with a little bit of of skepticism, I think. I mean, a lot of these uh, claims about beheaded babies and you know, little kids stuffed in ovens and burned alive and stuff like that is all basically coming from alleged eyewitness testimony or hearsay from other people. So it's it's tough to know exactly what happened, but I think this makes much more sense compared to these ridiculous atrocity tales that were told. And it just totally is, is almost like 100% opposite of what the mainstream is saying. And isn't it interesting how we're having to turn to independent like Jewish journalists like journalists like Max Blumenthal to to give us the facts of the matter right well in the west i guess so you know i've been getting a lot of uh, what i've seen on this from al jazeera and other arabic language outlets and so i actually I, I knew all this stuff very very quickly like on october 7th i actually watched live feeds uh, of cameras taken you know from these paragliders these hamas uh, guys were, were sailing down over the border in their paragliders, filming as they were doing it and filming each other. And then the Hamas fighters filmed themselves uh, overrunning these Israeli military installations and so on. And, and there was lots and lots of footage. And I continued to watch Al Jazeera, which covered has been covering it live, 24-7 live broadcast. And, you know, the Israelis are killing a, a journalist every day on the average. You know, they are deliberately targeting journalists. Uh, uh, Daudu guy uh, lost his, his whole his wife, his his children, uh, you know, his, his whole family got got wiped out by the Israelis. They're, they're you know, re- t- deliberately targeting and killing journalists day after day after day because they don't want the story told. But you can get that story from the Arab media. And I knew by the next day that the a lot of this damage had to have been done by the Israelis, even, you know, not just from what Al Jazeera was showing, but even uh, if you critically look at what the Israelis themselves were putting out, they showed, as, as Blumenthal said, the Israelis put out these pictures of uh, a line of cars that had just been utterly shredded uh, and then tried to claim that Hamas did that. Well, I'm sorry, guys, but Hamas came out with light weapons. <laughs> how do you how do you completely you know shred uh, a whole highway full of cars with light weapons? How, how do you utterly demolish entire houses and buildings with light weapons? So you know, I I knew that a lot of this damage had obviously been done by the Israelis from the very beginning, and I could see that this was a military operation targeting the Israeli military because that's what all of the Hamas spokespeople were, were saying, it, it made perfect sense. That's what we could see as we saw the actual uh, video feeds. You know, a huge number of these uh, Palestinian guys had their cameras on. And so you, you could watch everything they were doing. And it wasn't that hard to, so this, I mean, the whole Arab world got the narrative that, you know, Max Blumenthal gave the West like three weeks later, but we all got it right away. And the questions were, you know, I actually started translating now just because, uh, you know, for this, there's a lot of good stuff, including analysis in the Arab media that they will not allow into Western mainstream media. Right. So I I just I I just translated a a military analysis into English 
uh, day before yesterday and put that out there. It's now headlined at the UNS Review. Uh, and, and so it's not just the Jewish <laughs> dissident journalists like Max Blumenthal, but uh, also, you know, if, if, I guess if you want to learn Arabic, you can really figure out what's going on much quicker. Right. Yeah. Well, that doesn't surprise me that we'd we'd get, you know, more objective analysis from, you know, Arabic sources. That, that certainly doesn't surprise me. So I guess overall, um, is it fair to say that in, in your view, um, Israel's military capabilities were severely overestimated? And also, could you address I, I've heard rumors and, in, 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 you know, reports that um, a lot of the military personnel along the Gaza border were actually repositioned um, towards the West Bank due to, you know, the, the sort of conflict taking place there and the, the protests that were taking place with, um, you know, how, you know, some of these settlers and these more like extremist uh, Zionist fanatics were desecrating the, the, the mosque and just treating Christians and Muslims. In fact, what's interesting is like literally, I think like a week before October 7th, the, the previous issue of American Free Press, we had this big article, this big report about um, all of the Orthodox Jews, including children, spitting upon Christians and just treating, you know, non-Jews with utter contempt and hostility and even, you know, committing acts of violence against them. So this is like a long running issue in this region, how the, the Israelis treat non-Jews in the Holy Land, in Jerusalem, in the, you know, in the old city. Um, and, and it seems like, you know, based on your analysis, the, the Palestinians that, you know, Hamas and, and some of these Palestinian resistance fighters just had had enough and, you know, basically rose up and, and broke out of this Gaza concentration camp. Yeah, I think the Israelis made a mistake by imagining that they had succeeded in dividing and conquering their opposition far more than they actually had. And the reason that the Israelis moved their troops away from the wall over to the West Bank on the other side of the country was, I believe, not so much uh, a part of a false flag operation, but, uh, or, you know, they weren't, it wasn't a deliberate stand down for our October 7th. I think they were concerned that the focus was over there in the West Bank, where, as you say, there had been this escalating series of Israeli provocations. They, as you say, they've been provoking the Christians and especially the Muslims at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And so they were expecting perhaps an intifada in the West Bank. And I think they believed, and of course, all the official sources, including relatively credible ones like Ronan Bergman, who's a kind of a you know, unofficial uh, lead journalist putting out information from and about the Mossad. They tell us that the Israelis believed that Gaza was under control, that Hamas was interested in sort of making deals and, you know, accumulating more wealth and power and, and, and you know, improving the standard of living of the people of the Gaza Strip and working within the system, as it were. And so the Israelis thought they kind of had uh, Gaza covered and they could go and raise hell over in the West Bank and raise hell at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is what they were doing. And I think what they missed is that this issue of the the Holy Land in general and the Al-Aqsa Mosque in particular for Muslims is an issue that all Muslims are not going to let go of, including Hamas and its supporters. I think the Israelis may have grossly underestimated Hamas, which is not some sort of marginalized terror group. Nobody in this region sees them as terrorists. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're heroes and freedom fighters for everybody in this whole region. There's, you, you would be, especially now, you'd be very hard pressed to go out here in, you know, anywhere in North Africa or the Middle East, find a single person that isn't like jumping up and down, cheering wildly for Hamas and, and the rest of the Palestinian resistance. And part of the reason is that these provocations against the Al-Aqsa Mosque, they aren't, they don't just bother Palestinians in the West Bank. They are completely unacceptable to the entire region and to all Muslims, just like their provocations against Christians ought to be unacceptable to Christians. But, of course, the Zionists have bought up all the media in the most important Christian countries. So that information doesn't seem to get through. And uh, in, in any case, I don't think it was a false flag again. And the, the biggest reason why that narrative doesn't make sense to me is that the strategic gains 
to me, don't just are not there. That Israel has suffered a huge strategic loss. And if you look at false flags, there are always obvious and, and easily anticipated strategic gains, whether it's a LIHOP or a MIHOP false flag. You know, when the U.S. sent its troops into Mexico to start the Mexican War, you know, get a little shoot up going in 1846 and then put out newspaper headlines claiming falsely that Mexico attacked us, that was we knew that we could easily beat them and steal half of their country, which we did. So we you know, huge gains. And likewise, with the remember the Maine incident where somebody uh, blew up the USS Maine battleship uh, that also unleashed a predictably easy American victory over Spain in which we were able to steal all of Spain's most important overseas colonies, starting with Cuba and the Philippines. And with World War II, the U.S. knew, Roosevelt knew, that if the U.S. comes into World War II, we can swing the outcome and come out of it on top of the world ruling the world, which, of course, we did. That was all obvious and with the Gulf of Tonkin, I guess they made a slight mistake there because they thought that, well, you know, we can't we can't possibly lose this Vietnam War fighting this tiny little country. Uh, so, yeah, there they made a mistake. But false flags, you know, not, and with 9-11, the gains were immeasurable for the, the Zionists. You know, Israel basically did 9-11 in order to hijack the U.S. military to destroy their enemies, starting with those seven countries in five years. And they've taken out pretty much six of them. And they're still working on Iran. That was all easy to anticipate. You blow up the Twin Towers, enrage the American people against Muslims, you can get Americans to support going into that region and destroying Israel's enemies. So in all those cases, there were huge strategic benefits available to the perpetrators of a false flag. But in October 7th, it, the world post-October 7th is actually a lot worse for Israel than the world before October 7th, because they had neutralized the Palestinian issue to a great extent. They were normalizing with the Saudis and spearheading this new Middle East initiative that was going to put a gas pipeline uh, as well as a trade route from India uh, over uh, in, to Saudi Arabia. And then a lot of you know, that gas and energy would flow from Saudi Arabia through Jordan and then through Israel. And that was going to be a huge plus for both Israel and the United States, which is trying to counter China's Belt and Road Initiative. So this was going to be a big strategic bonus for both Israel and the United States. Now, that's dead in the water. You're never going to get Saudi normalization with Israel, ever. Uh, it's not going to happen in a million years now. And there's no way there's going to be a pipeline to Israel through Jordan and Saudi Arabia now. Never going to happen. So that's that's off the table. And in terms of this idea that, yeah, the Israelis want to finish the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, yeah, they would like to. But they, they won't do that unless they know they can easily get away with it and end up you know, better off than they were before they started it. That's far from obvious right now. It's far from obvious that they can uh, fully push the people of Gaza out of Gaza. Uh, Gaza is not so valuable that the gains of doing that would be greater than the overall losses to Israel's legitimacy. And the overall strategic equation now is favoring the anti-Zionist resistance forces. So uh, that strategic analysis tells us that they would have to be completely crazy to do this kind of a, a, do this as a false flag and have, you know, kill off a thousand of their own people, uh, totally crater their reputation for competence. Now, the thing that's kept the world's two billion Muslims from putting an end to Israel thus far is that everybody's so terrified of how powerful Israel is and how perfect their military is and all this sort of thing. Just like here in the United States, people don't rise up against the Zionists because, oh, they'll break you. They'll destroy your career. They're so powerful. They're so good. They're so, you know, well, no, they're not. They can be beaten. In fact, you know, these guys with paragliders and, uh, you know, cheap boats and stuff, yeah, all, all it took were some cheap drones. And drones, by the way, are revolutionizing uh, the military equation in favor of underdogs. All of this means that the Zionists can be beaten. And they didn't want to show that they could be beaten. And now they've shown it and they're going to be beaten. So yeah, they would have to have been yeah. crazy to do a false flag. Yeah, no, I think you're making a lot of good points. And I think, I mean, I, I've seen reports about how a lot of, um, you know, these guys and, and girls, for that matter, in Israel's military are just, I mean, you know, this sort of like woke culture, this woke mindset that we see in America, in our military, it, you know, is it, just as prevalent as it is in Israel. And, you know, 
a lot of these people don't really <laughs> stand much of a chance, you know, in 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 in, in, a, in a legitimate conflict with a serious army. Um, and and I think that's definitely the case with Israel and even with the U.S. military for that matter. I think it's very much overrated. The only thing that we got going for us is our technology and and you know the sophisticated weaponry that we have. And that's certainly what we see playing out in Gaza right now. I mean, they're just sitting back and bombing the whole place to smithereens, which is more or less their strategy for the past, you know, 20 years or more. Um, you know, very rarely do they ever engage in like a ground operation. And when they do, they often get their butts kicked. I mean, didn't Hezbollah um, defeat them in what was that, 2006, 2007? Yeah, that's right. And we're seeing a replay of that now and of the earlier Gaza incursions. There, were, there have been a couple of Gaza incursions as well. Uh, and in all of those cases, Israel was unable to achieve its objectives. It couldn't put down the, you know, quote unquote, terrorist uh, opposition and had to make a deal with them instead. Well, and, it, and, and it's and it's almost like impo- it's like an, almost an impossible situation going into a very densely populated urban environment like Gaza, where, you know, there there's people everywhere. You know, you don't know, you know, w- where the next cell is or what. You know, it's just a very, very difficult operating environment to conduct a military operation. So, but, and, and so not only that, but also just the state of the Israeli military, I don't think they're as competent and as capable and as ruthless at, well, they're certainly ruthless, but, um, you know, from like a on the ground, you know, boots on the ground fighting type capability, I don't think they're as, as capable as, as many people make them out to be. Yeah, I agree. They're very good at killing children from a safe distance, whether it's the sniper murders of the kind that Chris Hedges has described where the Israeli snipers bark out obscene insults over bullhorns so that little Palestinian kids will come and throw rocks at them, and the Israeli snipers can murder the kids for sport. You know, they, they can do that, <clears throat> and they, uh, they brag about it. You know, they, they have one-shot, two-kills T-shirts for the IDF soldiers that show a, uh, a Muslim woman with a, you know, who's visibly pregnant with a target on her belly, and the legend says one-shot, two-kills. They're really good at that kind of stuff. Uh, shooting pregnant women in the belly, shooting children for sport. And they're really good at dropping bombs from a safe distance on the houses of, of civilians and killing women and children. And so far, they've killed maybe 5,000 to 6,000 children uh, and another three or 4,000 women uh, since October 7th. And I, you know, it's hard to keep up with the figures because every hour or two, they drop another big bomb on somebody's house and kill a bunch more innocent people. And they're very good at that. But in terms of fighting on a more equal basis, they're not so good. And that's why grossly under-equipped forces compared to them, like, like Hezbollah and Hamas, have been able to hold them off. And so far, the Hamas fighters have destroyed 150 Israeli tanks and other military vehicles. Uh, and they've been doing this with these RPGs and uh, some improvised devices it's amazing footage. I don't know how much of this you've seen, John, but it, the footage that Hamas is taking of its guys uh, knocking out Israeli tanks, including using drones. There's one uh, early on, they put out a, a video of a drone uh, just dropping this sort of bomb thing, uh, improvised thing onto Israel's, what is that called, like the lion or whatever, it's the latest, uh, most supposedly impregnable Israeli tank and destroying it. So, Israel is already taking heavy losses, and it's unclear that they've really made any military progress at all to speak of. They've you know, managed to creep into Gaza City. Uh, so that's, their one achievement is that they now have some tanks there in Gaza City, but they're taking losses all of the time. And then ultimately, their real problem is that they don't have any real uh, strategic vision of what they're trying to accomplish. They say that they want to destroy Hamas. Well, what does that mean? You know, yeah, there is this sort of organization, I guess, called Hamas, and there are other Palestinian resistance organizations as well. But ultimately, it's that, you know, the, the idea of Hamas is really an idea, and that organization can reform any time that there are a whole bunch of, you know, angry, young, uh, capable, competent, competent people. Uh, and for every person that they kill, they're creating a dozen or a hundred more uh, who are ready to fight against them. So they, whatever 
progress they've made by, you know, they drop drop bombs that kill, you know, 100 people in, or 500 people in a hospital, and they say, well, there were, there, were, there were one or two Hamas guys we think were in there. So maybe they killed, you know, one or two Hamas guys, but they, they just killed 500 people who all have friends and relatives and all the people watching this uh, all over the world. They, they just created 10,000 people who were dedicated to wiping them and their cause off the face of the earth. So absolutely. And they won't stop digging. Absolutely. Well, and, and people like Pat Buchanan, for example, have been making this point for 30 years now about how just, you know, our support for Israel and their misguided policies are just going to totally backfire and just generate even more hostility and contempt for them and, and resistance to them. That's and, and that's exactly what we see playing out in the Middle East today. Now, I want to talk about your piece that you just uh, that, that was just published in the most recent issue of American Free Press. Issue 45 and 46 just went to the printer this morning, as I mentioned, when we started this podcast. And this was a very provocative piece, I thought, explaining why you, in fact, support Hamas and why Americans should as well. And currently, I mean, I'm sure you've been seeing like in you know mainstream political discourse, anyone voicing even the slightest support for Palestine has been denounced as an anti-Semite and a terrorist sympathizer. People on, you know, students on college campuses that are, you know, voicing their support for Palestine have been doxxed and, you know, big, you know, big corporate banks and employers are saying, look, we're not going to hire Anybody at any college that's supporting Palestine, this is unacceptable. This is anti-Semitic and, you know, this this sort of rhetoric we hear. Um, now, I want you to kind of first off, can you maybe just explain, because I don't even think a lot of, I'm sure most people listening are somewhat aware, but most average Americans wouldn't even know the first thing about Hamas. What is Hamas? What do you know about its history? And can you address this claim that I, I hear pretty regularly in alternative media circles that Hamas was actually created by Israel or by the U.S. or, you know, by, by this U.S.-Israeli alliance um, from the very beginning. And then we can maybe move on and, and discuss why, in fact, you do support Hamas and the broader Palestinian resistance, resistance movement against Israel. Right. To understand where Hamas got started, you know, we need to go back to the Cold War days when the Palestinian resistance was heavily secular. Uh, PLO, Palestinian Liberation Organization, which was created primarily by Yasser Arafat in the early 60s, had scored a lot of successes and become, you know, it gradually became this kind of, uh, it went from being a bunch of supposed terrorists uh, if you like them, you call them freedom fighters or guerrillas or what have you, to becoming widely acknowledged as the legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. And at that point, the American leadership looked at the situation and said, well, you know, as the world says, the obvious solution to this is to have a Palestinian state. And the only question is the details. What kind of state would that be? And the whole international community agreed um, and you can, you know, you can, you can personally agree or disagree with this, but the international community said, okay, the UN General Assembly in 1948 voted to recognize the state of Israel. Now that had no official uh, imprimatur. That is, the UN did not create Israel because the General Assembly can't do anything binding, uh, but it did sort of give uh, an aura of legitimacy to. Israel as it was delineated in those boundaries of the UN resolution. And then in 1967, Israel waged a war of aggression. Now, of course, you know, they, they uh, cry out as they strike you. So the Israelis have always been saying that, oh, no, you know, it was the, our evil enemies that waged the war of aggression. But in fact, that was a long planned war to steal more land uh, because the Israeli leadership thought it needed strategic depth. So they invaded and occupied their neighbors in 1967 and stole a whole bunch more land. They'd already stolen a lot more than the UN had given them uh, in 1948. And so in 1967, they stole even more. And the international community at that point afterwards said, okay, if Israel goes back to its pre-1967 boundaries, which is still way more land than the UN ever gave them, which was already way too much because you know, the UN gave, at that time, uh, Palestinians owned about 90% of the land and Israelis owned about 10%. But the uh, United Nations 
stole all that land from the Palestinians and gave the, gave the Jews uh, 60% and the uh, Palestinians only 40%. So basically, they, that was grotesquely unjust. Anyway, uh, the Israelis just keep stealing more and more and more and more and more. And in 67, the world said, okay, that's enough. You have to give back what you stole in 67, and we'll let you keep what you stole in 1948. We'll let you keep what you stole by way of the U.S. pressuring the United Nations uh, in 1948. And so the entire international community says uh, Israel has to go back behind its pre-1967 borders, and then the Palestinians and the neighborhood have to accept Israel in, under those conditions. So that was the obvious two-state solution that the whole world basically accepted. Now, I don't agree with that because I don't think Israel should be, exist in the first place. <laughs> but in any case, this is what the world thinks. So uh, if that, from then on, from 67 on, uh, there was uh, the, the issue was that the Palestinian uh, Liberation Organization, or PLO, had accumulated enough power and you know, moral and, you know, and strategic capital that it was able to get the U.S. and other uh, powerful countries behind it and saying, OK, we need this two-state solution. Israel has to withdraw from the land it stole in 1967. Now, the problem is that half, you know, half the Israeli leadership was willing to do that, basically, and the other half wasn't. Well, the half that wasn't ended up prevailing. They, uh, uh, they, they murdered Rabin, the leader of the faction that wanted to give back the land. And so this faction that actually signed, literally signed a blood oath to never give back you know, a single hectare of the land that they stole in 67 took over. And has been running things ever since. And so Netanyahu has been the kind of chief of that faction. And so Netanyahu in the 90s, the, early, the late 80s, early 90s, uh, the Netanyahu faction uh, said, OK, the PLO is our big problem. You know, they are the ones, the Palestinian uh, Authority, which is now the problem because they've got the international community behind them uh, trying to force us to give up. Our, uh, our land that we took in 67. We don't want to give that up. So what we need to do is weaken them. How can we weaken them? Well, here's this guy, uh, Sheikh Yassin, that we had in an Israeli prison, and he seems like a decent guy. What if we get this Islamic resistance group going that can sort of compete with the PLO and maybe delegitimize them? So Israel actually did fund Sheikh Yassin in like 1990-ish to launch Hamas. But very quickly... Hamas made it clear that it was a real resistance organization. And it was only within a couple of years that Israel deeply regretted having created it. And from that point so, on... So it like backfired on them big time, it sounds like. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, Ronan Bergman in his book, Rise and Kill First, you know, gives us the details. And I think it's, yeah, you can argue with a lot of what he says overall, but I think the picture he paints of how over and over Israel's made the same mistake. They think that they can kill or get rid of some kind of leadership and that'll solve their problem. And they're doing it again now, of course, with this idea that they're going to try to get rid of Hamas. And every time they, they get rid of, you know, they, they do manage to kill a bunch of their enemies, but the next group of enemies that, that arises is more formidable and angrier than the previous group. It happens over and over and over. And so that's what happened with Hamas, that Hamas turned out to be a tougher nut for them to crack than the PLO ever was. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, so, I mean, this idea that, I mean, maybe Israel did sort of play some sort of hand in facilitating the creation of Hamas, but it quickly sort of went off the reservation and became, and, and I've always looked at Hamas and Hezbollah, for that matter, as very independent legitimate resistance movements to Zionist oppression in the region, right? That's always been my impression based on their rhetoric, based on their actions. It's never been sort of clear to me that they're like some sort of phony fake resistance movement or something like that. No, they're widely acknowledged as a legitimate Palestinian resistance movement by the entire region, and they're very widely supported. And, and that's why they're not a false flag group in the way that, you know, Al Qaeda is arguably basically a false flag group because it was so infiltrated and it was doing counterproductive things. And then ISIS is even worse. ISIS is 100 percent false flag. I mean, it, ISIS is not in any way, shape or form a legitimate Islamic group. And if you poll Muslims, you know, on you know their support for these different groups, what you find is you might find a sort of at the very peak 
uh, Al-Qaeda might have gotten like 20, 25 percent support because, hey, bin Laden gave a good speech and a lot of what he said was true. <laughs> okay, But we still don't like Al-Qaeda's rhetoric about being willing to target civilians. That part Muslims don't like. So they never, you know, Al-Qaeda never had that much support. Uh, and you know, mostly it was a lot lower than 20 percent. With, with um, ISIS, it's basically zero. You know, you can't get really any Muslims to endorse ISIS except for, you know, ones who you know get take too much drugs or you know go on the internet and get too excited when they're young and stupid but the larger muslim community worldwide has no use for isis and never did basically that group has zero support and basically everything it does is counterproductive it was designed to actually skunk the idea of an islamic state muslims all support the idea of a single islamic ummah or quote unquote islamic state that would govern all of the contiguous Muslim-majority uh, parts of the world as one single political entity. Everybody's, you know, two, well, two-thirds of Muslims support that. But ISIS? Nobody. They're, they're, they're crazy. They're, you know, they're drug-crazed, you know, butchers. They're, they're horrific. They're, they're as bad as the Zionists. So uh, it's important, actually, to, to, you know, get that sense of what do the people in, you know, with the dog in the fight think. And everybody who knows the region knows that Hamas is legitimate. Right. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right about that. Well, why don't you lay out why you, in fact, support Hamas and the broader Palestinian resistance movement, despite what, you know, Western politicians and media pundits would say that, you know, you're a terrorist supporter, a terrorist sympathizer, enabler, you're an anti-Semite. Why do you, in fact, support Hamas? Well, you know, first, let's get rid of this this terrorist thing. Uh the word terrorism, it refers to a military tactic that consists of deliberately attacking civilian populations to instill fear to achieve political objectives. That's what terrorism means. And it's a military tactic with a long history. And sometimes it's been successful quite often, maybe even more often it's been unsuccessful, especially over the long term. Because when you deliberately target civilian populations, you piss people off and they come back at you generation after generation. And some argue that that actually contributed to the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, where these brutal tactics of targeting the so-called barbarians, uh, civilian populations, led just pissed off generation after generation of barbarians to the point that eventually they took down Rome. Uh, anyway, calling Hamas a terrorist organization is the exact opposite of the truth. That is, Hamas is, is not primarily trying to target Israeli civilians. On the other hand, Israel is primarily trying to target Palestinian civilians. What we have in occupied Palestine is a war of extermination by the Zionist invaders against the people of Palestine who live there. These crazy, psychotic invaders from across the seas, intoxicated by their religious mythology, telling them that Yahweh had given them a real estate deed to this land like 3,000 years ago, came and started butchering and expelling the local people and committing terrorism against them in the strict definition of the word, violence against civilians to achieve a political objective. They wanted to get rid of the people of that region so that they could take it over and inhabit it themselves. That's called genocide, and it's called terrorism. Now, the people who fought back against that and said, no, you cannot invade my land murder my family members, capture my uh, brothers, sisters, and torture them, and make our lives so miserable that the survivors flee forever and give you the land. No, we're going to fight back. So that's, that's what the Palestinian resistance is, the people who are fighting back. And there's never been a more obvious case of a just war in all of human history than the war of the people of Palestine against the genocidal invading Zionists. Uh, so... Uh, why is this narrative that I've just sketched out so different from everything you hear in the Western media? Because wealthy Zionist Jewish billionaires totally dominate the Western media, and you're just not allowed to speak the truth. So, you know, that's kind of the short right. version. Yeah, no, no, that's that's obviously the case. I mean, you will not hear and, – and I mean even Biden himself was up there describing Hamas as an organization – literally dedicated its all its sole existence its sole purpose is to kill jews around the world that's like what the president of the united states is saying about this legitimate political resistance movement 
Um, I was just watching uh, the Republican debate the other night, and virtually to a man, well, in fact, to a man or woman, I guess, in the case of Nikki Haley, all of them basically said that they support Israel literally genociding the Palestinians and wiping Hamas Hamas off the face of the earth. That I mean, there's like direct quotes. I'm looking at an article here from the Jewish Telegraph Agency that was just published um, a day or two ago. Headline here is, Finish Them. GOP presidential candidates unite over what they'd advise Netanyahu about Hamas. And all of them, like I said, were basically saying, look, go in there, wipe out Hamas, eliminate them from the face of the earth. These people are terrorists. They are butchers. Of course, none of this is true. And right from the very beginning, um, when this uh, this surprise attack happened, and like that very next week, because I think I think October 7th was a Saturday, and then I started following it much more closely Sunday and Monday and, you know, into that, that first week. And from the very beginning, it was all of these very, very dubious and far-fetched and, frankly, ludicrous atrocity tales, many of which sound very familiar to the same claims that they were making about the alleged Holocaust during World War II. I don't know if you have any comments on that, but a lot of this, a lot of this rhetoric about these atro- alleged atrocities sounds very, very similar to what we hear about the alleged Holocaust. And I think it's uh, safe to say that that entire narrative has been systematically debunked, as have a lot of these atrocity tales coming out of Israel. Um, and, and despite you know the, the public skepticism of a lot of these claims being made, despite the fact that to a large extent they have in fact been discredited and debunked, they are still widely circulated and taken at face value by the mainstream media, by even, you know, more alternative conservative pundits and outlets, and of course, virtually all U.S. politicians. It's it's incredible. I mean, are these atrocity tales legitimate in any way, or are they part of a broader global psyop to gin up support for Israel and slander the Palestinians as ruthless, barbaric terrorists? I think the answer is pretty obvious. Yeah, well, war propaganda hasn't really changed that much since the pictures of the, the babies being skewered on German bayonets in World War One. You know, those cartoonish images now look ridiculous. And we look at these pictures of, you know, these, these bestial German soldiers, you know, the, the evil Huns uh, twirling uh, Belgian babies on their bayonets, and we say, really, did did our did my grandfather actually believe that back in you know 1916, 1917? Is that why he volunteered and went and fought over there? Uh, how could people ever have believed anything that ridiculous? But we just see the same thing over and over, where uh, you know the invocation of murdered babies, imaginary murdered babies, uh, makes you know really good war propaganda, because people are apparently you know even stupider. <laughs> Than we ever realized, you know, the famous case of the Kuwaiti baby incubator incident that was cooked up by the Hill and Knowlton law firm or public relations firm uh, to push through congressional approval for U.S. entry into Gulf War One. That was the story that was tearfully told by this nurse Naira who had been coached by Hill and Knowlton. And she was actually the Kuwaiti ambassador's daughter, had nothing to do with any hospitals or nursing, but they just hired her to play the role. And she they apparently taught her to cry on command. So she shed a few tears as she was testifying to Congress about having witnessed these evil Iraqi soldiers bashing the brains out of the poor little babies on the cold hospital tile floors. And, you know, Congress broke down weeping with her and immediately voted to authorize Bush's uh, Gulf War One. And so we, we see that we see the looted. same exact thing. Yeah, it's yeah, literally yeah, the it's, same exact thing. Only now the babies are beheaded rather than bashed on the floor. Uh, but or, or, honestly, or, or thrown in an oven and cooked. I mean, that's been a big claim the past week that I've seen. It's oh, absolutely no. – yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. These And, 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 the, and I'm sorry. I'll, I'll let you finish here, but let me just make this point. All these atrocity tales – and I think I mentioned this earlier. They're all based on extremely dubious and untrustworthy, untrustworthy eyewitness testimony um, or even worse – it's not even direct eyewitness testimony. It's hearsay. It's, oh, I somebody told me that this is what they saw, and I'm relaying it to you like secondhand. Um, that's, that's been big. And, and these people are speaking at the, the, the Republican Jewish Coalition. This guy that was over in Israel, he's, he's a, a member of one of these um, first responder type groups, which sound very, very similar to like the – remember like the white hats in Syria? It's like the same type of like 
activist type organizations that are manufacturing these fake stories to you know to instill this this fake narrative i mean i don't know how we can trust any of these people especially when none of it's been verified it's just it's just testimony it's just eyewitness testimony and these very emotional traumatic claims and i think that's what really is what hits home to that to the average public they hear this and it's like absolutely horrifying and traumatizing and it's you know something that that sort of shocks you and you you know it sort of hits you on a deep emotional level bypassing any sort of critical thought you know right and, and of course the, the irony here is that while the palestinian resistance fighters did not kill any babies because the israelis have released the names of the victims uh from october 7th and there are no children or babies on the list none zero uh they the israeli sources have basically admitted that none of this is true but the what is true is that the Israelis have murdered thousands of babies in among the like five or six thousand children that they they've murdered since then. So the Israeli propagandists, including the people who control American media, have been putting out genocide propaganda in the form of these hilariously false and obviously false claims about beheaded babies and babies cooked in ovens and things like that in order to allow them to continue actually murdering babies by the hundreds and thousands. And that's actually a crime. And everybody complicit in that, you know, ranging from the media people who are publishing these stories, uh, the sources that come up with them, uh, the President Biden, when he endorses them, all these people are very obviously guilty of the crime of propagandizing for genocide. And at some point, you know, I don't know if I'll live long enough to see the final you know, fall of America, but it's it's coming along. I don't think it's going to be very, very uh, long now. I mean, the whole world here is lining up behind the Palestinian resistance. The whole world likes Hamas. It's only the fools who are getting their information from Western mainstream media that actually believe any of this insane stuff that's being pumped out. And the world, power is changing in the world. And all it's going to take is like one you know, serious kind of collapse or combination of economic collapse and military disaster or something. And, you know, the U.S. empire is toast. And we may end up in a situation where a whole lot of American leaders and media people are going to have to worry about being renditioned and taken you know, to The Hague or maybe to Beijing or wherever the, the next war crimes trials are going to be and put on trial and possibly executed for what they're doing and saying right now. Right. Well, I mean, we, we have been complicit in, in all sorts of crimes around the world and including, you know, wars of aggression based on total lies, torturing people. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of the, the crimes of the deep state. Um, and, and almost none of them, none, almost none of these criminals have ever been held accountable. So that day is, is hopefully God willing, you know, quickly approaching. Um, and, and, I do think, though, that there are a lot more people that are very skeptical of a lot of these claims, these atrocity tales. And um, I mean, we've even seen like massive pro-Palestine rallies all around the world, including in the United States, some of which are even led by explicitly Jewish organizations like If Not Now and Jewish Voices for Peace and, you know, these kind of like more left wing, progressive, anti-war, anti anti-racist type groups and i certainly don't agree with their politics but i i do think it's it's important that there are people out there protesting in, in favor of the palestinians and sort of jamming up this pro-zionist narrative that we hear you know all over our televisions of course on social media and and you know certainly from our politicians i actually wrote a piece in this current issue of american free press about some of these protests the title of the of the article is global outrage aroused by gaza death toll and it's more or less about how more and more people are rejecting the pro-Zionist narrative coming out of the White House, coming out of mainstream media outlets, um, and, and just recognizing that the whole entire situation is fundamentally backwards. I actually interviewed Kat McGuire, who I know is a, a colleague of yours on False Flag Weekly News, and she's an activist based in, in New York City. And I had some really good quotes from her in this article. And she had a really good line where she basically was saying how um, 
The morality of the world is shaken by Israel's brazen, bloodthirsty commitment to not just annihilate an entire people, but to try and convince us that they, the Jews, are the victims. That's the most amazing part of this all, is how the, the, the Jews and the Israelis and their sympathizers are making it out that they are the, they are the victims, in fact, as they commit a genocide and war crimes against Gaza. I mean, I can't tell you, every time I go on Twitter, every time I look at Fox News, it's all about how anti-Semitism is rising and Jews are feeling threatened. In fact, I just watched a news segment the other day um, on Fox News where this Jewish former Harvard student was basically saying that this, this Hamas attack is allowing um, for criticism of Jews. Like, as if that were, like, somehow <laughs> against the law or something. Like, you can't criticize Jews. You can't you can't criticize Israel. That's sort of the line that they're taking. And, of course, this is all the rhetoric we hear from the ADL and from the Biden White House and how, you know, they were even threatening to, like, defund universities if they didn't do more to, to crack down on anti-Semitism and crack down on these pro-Palestine protests. I mean, it's outrageous how they could flip the situation and put themselves at, at, at as this as like the victims and all of this it's it's so typical i mean of course this is what they've been doing for a very long time but it's just outrageous and more and more people are recognizing this this is this is brazen inversion of reality and gaslighting that's right and you know the people who are worried about this creating a huge global wave of so-called anti-semitism may actually have a point because you know, there is that old proverb, the Jew cries out as he strikes you. And it's, you know, it's not just the state of Israel that has a history of claiming to always have been the victim in a series of conflicts in which it was obviously more the perpetrator than the victim. But the whole mythology that unites the you know Jewish tribal apparatus and has kept it with its sense of identity down through 3,000 years of history, has uh, a lot of that. You know, the, the stories in the Torah, the Old Testament, uh, you know, the book of Esther, for example, where uh, the story goes that, you know, we Jews were threatened by the Persians, and so our heroic prostitute Esther seduced the king of Persia and convinced him to get rid of his evil advisor who wanted to go against the Jews. And so we had to slaughter, had him slaughter 70,000 Persians. And that was a huge victory for us Jews. Uh, but, you know, those Persians deserved it because they didn't like Jews that were coming after us. So, you know, you read that and you think about, well, if there was an, any actual historical reality to any of this, which there probably Oh, Dr. Barrett, you there? Sure. Okay. That the reality would not have been, yeah. Yeah. Oh no, sorry. You you cut you. Yeah. Sure that the actual reality would not have been. Oh, sorry. I got cut off. Go ahead. No, you're good. You you did cut oh, off for just. Yeah, you you cut out for just okay. a moment, but go ahead. Sorry. Okay. So anyway, the you know the, the book of Esther's story of uh, the the Jews heroically slaughtering seventy thousand Persians all in good self defense. You know, if that were you know if there were any historical reality to that, it would probably not be quite that uh, uh, justifiable. And, you know, we, we when we look at the history of Jews being kicked out of so many dozens of countries down through the ages, and because our media and politics and finance are dominated by Jews today, we get one single narrative, which says it's always the fault of the other guy. And, you know, it's, it's, it's like uh, my great uncle was kicked out of every bar in Ireland and it was always the bartender's fault. You know, it's like so yes. obviously <laughs> yeah. false that it, it, when people can see with their own eyes what's going on right now in Gaza, as these cowardly child-killing Israelis are dropping bombs on hospitals and ambulances and mosques and churches, uh, just deliberately slaughtering civilians without any pretense of any kind of military justification, uh, this and then getting having the audacity or the chutzpah to get on the media megaphone and claim that they're the victims – it really raises questions about, you know, who are these people? Uh, and when people start looking into those questions and they start looking deeper into these Jewish stories that they've been told, 
the story of the evil Nazis and the World War II Holocaust being, of course, one of the big ones, but there are a lot of others as well. And, you know, we may see a complete implosion of this pro-Jewish narrative that currently dominates the West. And that could be accompanied by uh, a kind of blowback where the pendulum swings in the opposite direction and suddenly everybody's really angry at Jews in general. You know, there, there is a, a hadith uh, in Islamic uh, scripture, you know, not the kind of scripture that is inerrant, but the, uh, the kind of reports of what the Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, may have said. And there's one such hadith that says, you know, at the, in the end of days, there'll be a time when, you know, all of the, the, the trees and rocks will be crying out, there's a Jew behind me, come and kill him. Now, that sounds pretty harsh, but, you know, that what we're seeing in Gaza is making a whole lot of people around the world start to wonder whether the rocks and the trees aren't going to start crying out pretty soon. Yes, sir. Well, well, well said. And I mean, I think, you know, based on some of these big, massive protests, based on comments I'm seeing on social media, people are very skeptical of a lot of these claims of this just totally one-sided pro-Zionist narrative, uh, you know, the, the one-sided support for Israel by virtually every single political leader, including, um, you know, more alternative sort of dissident type candidates like a Tulsi Gabbard or a Robert Kennedy Jr., who bo both of whom appear to have like totally bought, all, you know, all of the Zionist talking points about this latest conflict. It, you know, it, it, it's outrageous and, and, and people are, are, are sick and tired of this. Or they're sick and tired of seeing their money you know, get, get sent overseas, whether it's to Ukraine or now to Israel. I mean, we've been giving Israel billions of dollars a year for a very, very long time. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's, uh, people are finally getting fed up and sick and tired of this. And, you know, we got to keep, uh, keep getting the truth out there and, and keep reporting on these, on these facts and getting these perspectives out there. You certainly will not see, you know, see an op-ed type piece appearing in the New York times about, why somebody supports Hamas and their legitimate struggle against Zionist oppression. That's for sure. You will only find that in the pages of American free press. So Dr. Barrett, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Keep up the great work and um, God bless Palestine. I guess I'll, I'll end it on that. Okay. Well, thank you, John. And God bless American free press. Well, it's, it is the last real newspaper. People definitely should subscribe. All right. Thank you, sir. Enjoy your weekend and I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take okay. Care. Bye bye. Bye.